0: You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Wonderful to be with you. You know, over the last few months, churches all over the country and all over the world, including ours, have had to face a very hard and clarifying question. And that is what parts of what we do as a church really matter? That is, what activities that we do are essential, are non negotiable, even in the midst of the upturning of our society and our habits and our practices? That's a good question to ask ourselves because, as good leaders know, crisis clarifies. Well, when we think about the non-negotiables of the church and the things we do, there's a lot of things we could list, but I think there's one that from the world's perspective, from an outsider view, is actually very, very odd, very weird. And that is the non-negotiable for Christians of singing. Now, whether you are personally a good singer or not, doesn't matter. Maybe you think you're a good singer and you're not, it doesn't matter. Christians have always sung. To sing and to make music is a deeply human activity. In fact, I was recently reading that some neurologists and philosophers have even made persuasive arguments that human language might have started with singing and then developed from there. Because using our vocal cords and our palates and our tongues and our lips and our minds to produce audible sounds that affect us and those around us, that is an amazing part of what it means to be created in God's image. The God himself who rejoices over us with singing, as the scriptures say, and who is surrounded by song always. So, like the descendants of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah before us, we Christians sing. This is a huge part of what it means to to live together as Christians, singing with and to one another in the presence of God. It's not something to be neglected, so we don't. Now, I bring this up as an introduction to our text this morning because many scholars believe that these very famous verses that are in front of us in Philippians, that we'll be looking at here in a minute, were probably actually a song originally that believers in the first century, in the earliest days of the church, sang. We don't know for sure but it's a reasonable argument that verses 6 to 11 of Philippians 2 that we're going to look at were words that Christians wrote and sang to each other to instruct each other, to remind each other of the truth and beauty of their faith. They would have been as sweet and familiar as A Mighty Fortress is Our God or In Christ Alone or some song like that to us. So what seems to be happening in our text is that Paul is making an argument, which we'll pick up here in a second again, and to support his argument, he kicks into this familiar song. He quotes these wonderful, instructive, powerful, poetic words in verses 6 to 11 to drive home his point. And so we're going to, and we're very glad he did because we 2,000 years get to listen in and hear what this song was. So what I wanna do today in our brief time together is just camp out for a few minutes in this ancient and beautiful hymn to see what we can learn from it. And as I said, verses six to 11 are going to be our focus, but these verses are flowing out of the argument Paul has been making. And the argument's very straightforward. It's what Pastor Kevin preached on last week, found in verses one to four. Let me read those for you from last week and get them in our ears again. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Such powerful words. In short, Paul is saying, in light of the love and encouragement and hope and acceptance that you as a Christian have found in Jesus Christ by being united with him, we should then pursue unity and love for one another with humility. Because the way of the Christian life is one of joyful service, of humbly serving others, not selfish living, not self-deception, not being controlled by all just our puffed-up arrogance and selfish ambition. The goal of the Christian life is a way of gentleness and peacefulness a centered person, not a frenzied, self-promoting, self-aggrandizing person. As I was trying to think of an image of this, I can only think of it, maybe this isn't perfect, but the contrast between the, the peaceful Grand Master Oogway, the thousand-year-old Galapagos Island turtle Kung Fu master from Kung Fu Panda, there's your assignment for this, this uh, afternoon if you haven't seen that, versus picturing maybe someone frantically tearing through a supermarket, knocking people over with their card and ramming into displays full of beans. Many people live their lives just tearing things up around them, tearing places up, tearing people up. But the Christian, by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces in the Christian a different kind of person, Paul is saying us and exhorting us towards, a life of humility and service and quiet power of serving others. It's a beautiful picture. But here's the question. Why? Why is that the Christian way? Why is this way of humility and serving others the Christian way? And now we're getting to our text. Look at verse 5. Paul says, "...in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus." The reason humility and serving others, the centered, peaceful life of love is the Christian way, Paul says, is because it is the way of Jesus Christ himself. This is the way he was. For For the Christian, Jesus's mindset or way of being should be the basis for our lives as well. This is what it means to be a Christian, to follow in the way of Christ Jesus. So, We live in humility towards each other, Paul is saying, because this is how Jesus himself lived. And now we get to our ancient Christian song that teaches us the way of Jesus. Now, I don't know what the tune was, so I won't try to sing it for you, but I want you to listen to the poetry and power of these words that are the argument Paul's making, the reason why we should live in humility like Jesus in verses six to 11. Let me read them for you. Speaking of Jesus, who... Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. I hope you can begin to see and feel why these verses are so famous and really some of the most important in the Bible and why we think it probably was a song originally because they are so compactly powerful. They're like a a jar of nitroglycerin of theology and praise right here in the middle of the book. And what I wanna do is spend just a few minutes and ask two questions. There's always two big questions I like to ask of biblical texts. And here they are, and I wanna ask them for this text as well. What do these verses teach us about God? And what do these verses teach us about ourselves? So the first one, what do these verses teach us about God? And I want to sum it up in a simple phrase that you can remember, Jesus Christ, the humble God, Jesus Christ, the humble God. The reason these verses are so famous and important in the New Testament is because of how powerfully and clearly they speak of what is one of the greatest mysteries of the entire universe. That the glorious and majestic God who created everything you see, including us, he is also humble. (laughs) That is a mystery. It's the mystery and wonder of what we call the incarnation, that God became a real and full human while remaining God in in Jesus Christ. We're brushing up here against the wonder and enigma that is the Trinity of God himself, that God is one in three persons, and that the Son, one of those persons who lives in an eternal and perfect relationship as part of the triune God, was sent into the world willingly and took on real human flesh. You believe that? The son Jesus is fully God, as verse six says, being in very nature God, but he made himself lowly, becoming a real human. I mean, You could not make this stuff up. No one ever dreamed this or planned it. No human could have thought this up. And if God would have consulted us about whether this was a good idea, we probably would have not recommended it. It's too crazy. It's too unexpected. It's too shocking. It's too amazing. Yet this is precisely what the Bible teaches, that the eternal Son of God stepped into time in a particular place and space in history 2,000 years ago in the dusty and verdant Israel on the far end of the Mediterranean Sea, and we're still talking about it and singing about it and building our lives on this reality today. But if the incarnation isn't shocking and unexpected and marvelous enough, that's not all that happened, this text reminds us. Jesus Christ, the son of God, did not become not, not just become a limited and real human. He willingly and painfully submitted himself to the dark part of what it means to be human, suffering and death. He didn't just take on flesh and then fly around and then fly back up to heaven. He submitted himself to the darkness of suffering and death. This God-man who had every right to be honored and pampered and bowed down to, instead he chose to bow his neck and his body and his life to suffering and death. And really the very worst and most humiliating death that a human could experience. He was falsely accused of a crime. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was stripped naked. He was hung on a tree in public from where he died by suffocation. That is a despicable and horribly dark death for any human. But for the sinless and completely innocent God incarnate himself, the one through whom the world was made, this humiliating death that he undertook willingly is really unspeakable. It's flabbergasting. It is tongue-stopping and soul-shocking. And what makes this possible is humility. Jesus is the humble God. Remember that Paul is using these words to make an application to our lives to show that we should have this same mindset, verse five, that Jesus had. We should be humble because this is how Jesus himself was. But the God story doesn't stop there. There's an end game. There's a justice in this unjust treatment of the incarnate Son of God. Let me read for you verses 9 and 10 once again. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So evil and dark things happen, but God is a God of justice and restoration and righteousness, meaning setting things to right. And the end game, the reward, the result, the glory that follows this humility on Jesus' part is exaltation to the highest place. The granting of the name that is above every name, the honor of all people and every bird and snake and snail and bird and bear and ocean and tornado and tree in the universe will bend its knees and use its tongues and clap its hands or branches or paws and acknowledge the greatness, rightness, beauty, goodness, nobility, and lordship of this humble God, Jesus. You see, God is the God of reversals, and this is the ultimate reversal. From the ultimate humiliation to the ultimate exaltation, from death to life, from dishonor to glory. And that pattern leads us to my second big question. So it teaches us that Jesus is the humble God, but what does it teach us about us? And I'd like to sum it up with maybe an unexpected phrase, but one that I hope you'll remember. That is the J shape of our lives. The letter J, the J shape of our lives. And let me explain. So theologians and pastors who are steeped in the scriptures have often observed for thousands of years that our spiritual lives are like a U shape, that we must go down before we can go up. We must die before we can live. We must descend before we can ascend. We must suffer before we can know joy. This is true. It's deeply biblical. And there's no passage of scripture that teaches this more clearly than the one that's before us today. It's right there in Jesus' own path of life. His humility and his humiliation preceded and even brought about in a mysterious way, his exaltation. As I've thought about this insight, about our lives being like a U, I'd like to suggest that while there's a lot of truth in that, there's maybe a better letter than U, and it's the letter J. And it's not just because J is for Jesus, although that's kind of cool too. But I think it's better. I think J is better than U, because when we think about the J shape of our lives, I think it describes our human experience. We start at one place, But then we must go down before we go up, but better than a U shape, which might indicate we kind of end up back at the same place. A J shape indicates that we end up higher than where we started before by going down. I think that's a great picture. And if you've been alive for more than just a few years, you've experienced this J shape reality a thousand times, and you know it's true, even if you've never articulated it. Some of you know right now I'm trying to learn golf, which is a whole world of metaphors about the the human life. Um, But for right now, I'm taking golf lessons and it means my swing is being deconstructed. Um, It is getting worse before it's getting better. But I know that I must go down and deconstruct bad habits and get my hips more flexible before I must go up or maybe more weighty if you think of the discipline you might have learned from the pain of a failed business before you learned to do things well, or maybe failures in relationships, you had to go down before you learned what really matters and learned how to love, or maybe nature itself. I think it shows this very clearly that seeds go into the ground, they crack, they disintegrate, and that is what creates mighty trees. There's no great man or woman who has not suffered greatly in one way or another first. You ask any great man or woman, they will tell you that there has been suffering along the way. I also think of the GIF or gif, you make your choice, which is the way to say it, of the old man, don't look it up right now, but afterwards, of the old man who is trying to walk up this escalator and he falls down and ends up being carried up backwards, upside down. I think of that as like the life of sanctification, that God is taking us up, but we often fall down on the way en route to it. This J-shaped reality is built into the fabric of the universe by God himself. Hear me to remind us and to teach us of our creaturely nature, to keep us grounded and humble that we must go down before we can go up. And the downward curve of the J shape of our lives is the humility and the humiliation we often experience when we fail, when we screw up, when our great plans and desires are stymied and frustrated and blocked. This is how God has made the world To teach our souls, to train us so that he might bless us with more. And Jesus experienced it himself. He is the ultimate model of the J shaped reality of our lives. And this is how the whole text ties together. God is inviting you and me into the Christian life, the Jesus way of humility, because that's how Jesus himself was. And the joyful promise is that even as Jesus went down the J curve of humility and thereby was eventually lifted up, so too for us. Our lives can and should follow the same path of Jesus in whom we are now united in his death and his resurrection. So what? So to conclude today, I just wanted to invite you to embrace two beautiful things right from what I've just said, just to embrace two things. The first is to embrace the son of God, to embrace Jesus, this humble God. The most obvious thing this wonderful passage of scripture teaches is that you and I must embrace the Son of God, the greatest truth of the universe that comes all the way down to our personal lives is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who came into our world in humility and now reigns as the Lord and King of the entire universe. Therefore, we will only find life and health and joy and love and flourishing and peace and eternal life if we bend the knee to him now. And in fact, the extent to which we bend the knee of our lives to him, even as Christians, is the extent to which we will know true life. So I invite you to stretch, to be stretched, to learn to bend the knee of your soul to the humble and powerful son of God into every aspect of your life, your business, your relationship, your parenting, your marriage, because therein, lies life both now and eternally, only by submitting yourself to the reality that God has revealed in Jesus. And the second is to embrace the J curve, to embrace it. I want to invite you to embrace the inescapable J-curve of our growth. In fact, the way that God has made the universe is that we must always go down before we can go up. It's Jesus' way, so it must be our way as well. This means that when you and I find things breaking apart in our lives, when we find things disintegrating and failing and falling, whether it's businesses, hopes, expectations, dreams, finances, friendships, securities, cherished plans, we must learn to embrace the reality that in God's universe, even that breaking down is for our good. It is the inevitable way to growth. Things must die before they can live. And the good news is that this deterioration in our life, this, these disappointments, these frustrations, they're not the end of the story. They are the downward bend of the J curve of life growth. And there is a bottom. There is a place where we reach the bottom where the curve turns up again. So if today you find yourself in this downward place in marriage or parenting or career or health know that this is not a sign that God is abandoning you or that it's not the end of your story. You are experiencing death just like Jesus did so that you might experience restoration and exaltation with him. And it's so hard to remember that. It's so hard to sit in that when we are experiencing death and loss because pain and loss and suffering are real and they're never good in the moment. But this is why we need reminders from Holy Scripture. We need reminders from each other. We need reminders from songs to refocus our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who, although he was God, humbled himself even to the point of death and has now been lifted up. And that, catching that vision alone will enable us to embrace the humility toward God and then toward each other. Amen and amen. So if you have communion elements, we invite you to grab those. If you don't, that's okay. Is there any greater picture of Jesus, the humble God, and of us united with him and embracing them than the night in which he was betrayed? He took bread and he broke it as a picture of his body being broken. And he took wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And what do we do? We partake of these. We take these into ourselves as reminders and renewals of what it means to be united with him, both in his death and therefore also in his resurrection. So I'm gonna pray. And on your own time, take of these elements. Remember who Jesus is for you is the humble God. Embrace him and embrace the way of humility as the way of life. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.